Hi, I'm Janelle Klein. Welcome to episode 31 of Greater Than Code, and I'm here with my co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, everybody. And our guest today is here, among other things, to school us in the art of doing Agile retrospectives. We apparently got a few things wrong on a previous episode, and she is here to make it right. Diana literally co-wrote the book on Agile Retrospectives. It's called Agile Retrospectives, Making Good Teams Great, and it's published by the Pragmatic Programmers. And in lieu of uh, uh, the usual bio that we do, I want to start with a personal introduction. Uh, I first met Diana in the summer of 2006 when I took a class in extreme programming at Portland State University. That was the first and almost certainly the last time that PSU ever offered a class in XP. And it was I was so lucky because they brought in people like Jim Shore, Arlo Belshi, Ward Cunningham, and Diana Larson. And Diana came in on the last day to facilitate a retro for the class. And when I got home that evening and my partner had asked me, you know, how was your day? I was just telling her for a good long while all the great stuff that we had done that day. And at the time, my partner, she did a lot of uh, presentations and some group facilitation for her work. And she said, wow, she must have been good because you hate group exercises. (laughs) (laughs) I stopped and was like, yeah, yeah, she is good. She's that good. So, uh. There you go. Welcome to the show, Diana. Well, thank you. I hope I haven't degraded over the last 10 years, but you never know. (laughs) Well, I was working on the um, Gilded Rose Cotta recently, and so I think that it's more like fine wine or brie, that your quality improves over time. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was great. Um, Andrew Black was the professor that uh, at PSU that got that class going, and he invited all of us. That was a really cool thing. It's a great way to end the summer. All right. So, uh, Diana, why are we here? Well, it's difficult for me because uh, I I am so devoted to the idea that particularly software work is learning work. For years, Peter Drucker introduced the idea of knowledge work and so on. And what I find that companies and people often do with that is they think of knowledge as something that you archive. It's not active. It's something you get and then you hold on to. And I don't think that fits for my experience with software work and working with people who are doing software development, whether they're programming or testing or being the product people or whatever they're doing. It seems like it's a very intense learning situation. And so when I hear people talk about retrospectives as, well, we made this list and then we made that list and then nothing happened, it makes me a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Understandably. Because there's no learning happening there. It's just listing is happening there. And people have this, many people, it's not just software folks, but many people have this idea that if I... If I make a list about things, then things will change and learning has happened by virtue of making the list. And that's just not how it works. And working with humans a lot over the last several decades, I'm very clear it's not what I what I have in mind when I talk about a retrospective, which is really getting clear, getting a common sense of what happened in the past what impact that's having on us now and how we want to either carry something forward or shift something in the future. What experiment does that suggest to us? What hypothesis do we have about how we might get better? And then, you know, how are we going to do something to test that hypothesis and then learn from the outcomes? So it's, you need all those pieces to have an effective retrospective. 
And if we're just listing or we're just having fun games, like the kind of activities and exercises that used to drive you crazy, you know, that doesn't do the trick. You really need to stay focused on the work and you need to stay focused on learning about the work and how we're doing the work together and all those kinds of things. You haven't said anything that I've disagreed with, like at all. And I'm like listening going, yeah. And so in general agreement and frustrated by a lot of the the similar things that I see kind of in general going on in the industry with respect to retrospectives and making lists and things being ineffective. And you clearly have a very kind of structured, deliberate approach of how to make retrospectives uh, significantly more effective. And yet mm-hmm. by your comments, I got the impression that you had a lot of dissonance ideas, but I'm, I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot of dissonance right now. I'm finding myself very much in agreement with you. So I'd like to hear a little more about um, specifically structure wise, what kind of things are, are different or if there's anything specific dissonant wise, I, I feel like one of the things that you brought up with agile fluency model I guess you didn't bring it up in the show, but I, I went and started reading I about the agile fluency model. And one of the, the first steps in there was focusing on value. Right. And your specific comment in Twitter was with respect to focusing on waste. And so I'm guessing with respect to distance, that might be something that we see things a little bit different way that might be fun to talk about. Okay. All right. And also, I'd like to hear again about the kind of retrospectives that both of you are doing with your work. And so, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to do a little sort of helpful critique in there. (laughs) (laughs) Always focus on the positive, on where I see you being effective and where I see you maybe going off the rails a little bit. So, yes, we could do both. What starts from is that teams of people trying to accomplish something together in general are complex adaptive systems. And so one of the things that we know about what works in complex adaptive human systems is an ongoing repetitive cycle of understanding the current state of things, understanding what the implications of that are for us, and then creating some hypothesis and plan for action and evaluation out of that. Now, in the retrospective framework that Esther and I put in the, Esther Derby was the co-author of Agile Retrospectives, in the framework that we propose, we start with some facilitation because people in groups don't naturally know how to learn about something, think about something, and make a decision about something uh, without some coaching and help. So our framework starts with set the stage. So we get people in the room, get their heads kind of in the right place to begin doing this work together. That may be as simple as a very quick check-in. It may also include going over what the agenda is for the time we're going to spend together. It could include a lot of things, but it's usually pretty fast. I almost always I, you know, I never say always, but almost always, I actually include a focus for that. I think one of the places where people get tangled up is if every retrospective is about continuous improvement, and that's all, then every retrospective starts looking the same and get becomes boring. So I look for some thinner slice of what is it that we've just experienced that we might want to focus on. So 
It might be increasing our adherence to our agreements about engineering practices. It might be improving our connection with our customer. It you know, could be any number of things, but it's some thinner slice of we're going to just continuously improve because that just opens things up way too much for a meeting that is generally you know, an hour, an hour and a half. So how do you choose what the focus is? Generally, um, I talk to people on the team I to see what's been bugging them. Maybe there's an incident that happened just in the last iteration or if you're doing Kanban in the last chunk of time that we are looking at in this retrospective, you know, there may something that has come up. What I have discovered is that if that turns out not to be the most important thing to talk about, the team will shift it very quickly. So, but we still end up with a thinner slice. So, you know, either way it works. So we just get people's kind of heads in the room ready to do the work. And then we do that, what we call gather data, generate insights, decide what to do. Um, Other folks have called that what, so what, now what. There's various ways of talking about that, but that's really the meat of the retrospective. And we can dive deeper into what each of those parts are, if you like. And then we do another sort of facilitation wrapper at the end where we say, okay, we're going to close the retrospective now. What is it we want to remember? What are our agreements about actions? That's also a good time to do just a general round of appreciations and to take a short piece of the time to continuously improve our retrospectives. So what in this retrospective do we want to keep carrying forward? What happened here that we want to maybe adjust for next time? Is there feedback for the person who facilitated it? And that's just, that's the wrap. But arrange, assert, act is also an interesting way of thinking about that. that. Lots of people have come up with a way of talking about that. Really get clear about the OODA loop is another one. Build, measure, learn is another one. Plan, do, check, act is another one. There's lots of folks have noticed that really assessing what just happened before you jump into analyzing what happened is a really good thing, particularly in groups, because otherwise we end up in this place where I'm talking in terms of my own experience and you're you're talking in terms of your own experience. And in spite of what we may think, those may not be matching experiences until I understand what happened for you in this last iteration and you understand what happened for me and all of our other teammates, we don't really have the full picture. So you really want to spend time getting that full picture. And that's the part that's most often left out. Yeah. One thing that really jumps out at me still uh, about that retrospective that you did for our class in 2006 was that you started off, maybe not immediately, but one of the first things that we did was we went and we built a timeline of the thing that we'd been through as a class and we put up post-its about our feelings. Yes. You know, I was feeling anxious. I was feeling satisfied. And uh, that really still jumps out at me as uh, something that was memorable and effective and that we don't do in a lot of the further retrospectives I've been in, even the good ones. Yeah, there are two parts to any event. There's the sort of factual nature of the event. You know, here's our effort data. Here's how much we got done, right? And then there's how we as humans respond to that data, that fact. And both of those things are useful information because if our effort data makes us embarrassed or guilty, (laughs) 
(laughs) that has one set of impacts on us. If our effort data makes us feel proud or about it, that has another impact. And so it's useful to call that out. Jim and Michelle McCarthy in their core protocols, they start every meeting with a check-in and mad, sad, glad, afraid. You know, we're humans and humans have an emotional component. And if we ignore that or try to sweep that under the rug, we're ignoring a big part of our motivational drivers. And so we really do want to get those out on the table as well. I mean, with respect to emotional drivers, though, you've also got factors of the things that we measure and then the things that we sort of define as good or best practice wise drive a lot of those emotions. So for example, if discipline TDD, for example, is a expectation socially on the team, failure Mm -hmm. to comply with that expectation, independent of whether, you know, the things that you're doing are helpful or not is, you know, makes people feel good or bad or whatever. Same thing with code coverage metrics is a a big one where people feel bad for the little progress bar not being in the right place, independent Mm -hmm. of whether the activities that they're doing are are actually helpful right. improvements or not. Right. I hear a lot of stories of things that go on on teams. And I recently I was hearing a story about a team that got a new team member who came from a culture that the original team members weren't as familiar with. And people persisted in mispronouncing the new person's name. And one of the existing team members that was very troublesome for Uh, He had worked very hard to figure out how to pronounce the new person's name and all the names of the people who were already there, which was a little easier. And he was troubled by the fact that his teammates weren't doing this. And that got in the way of working together. It got in the way of pairing. It got in the way of, uh, you know, all kinds of practices that they were trying to do together, making agreements. So, I mean, just it can be something that some folks think is small that can really trigger that emotional response. And, you know, I don't know if the emotional response was triggered in the person whose name was being mispronounced, but it sure as heck was in the person who was noticing that the mispronunciation, right? Mm -hmm. So teams can get tripped up by really interesting things that may seemingly be small, but if there is an emotional valence to it, it can have an outsized impact. Yeah, I can think of a number of just uncomfortable emotional situations on on teams I've been on. I mean, I can totally respect that situation of like, of it's disrespectful, I think, in the right. context of a team to not take the time to learn how to pronounce somebody's name. It's like, it's just yeah. kind of a... Uh, overt statement of, I don't care. I don't care enough about you to learn how to spell your name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You would think, but you know, I mean, how many people do you know that didn't come from mainstream American culture into a team whose names get shortened or for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. they, their full presence, their full name isn't honored. So I mean, that ha- just happens. You've and also it, got the other side of that, just, I would think, um, yeah. embarrassment. Yes. People not knowing how to say a name and not wanting yeah. to try and feel embarrassed. Right. And then that becomes its own thing. Right. Well, and, you know, it happens. I mean, of course, we see lots of things online and that happens with women when people are throwing around the term guys, right? All you guys on the team, right? 
<laughs> you guys. <laughs> For those who are listening at home, I have a little printed card. I have a couple of them. One says glitchy audio. One says there's a mic rubbing on fabric. And the one that I hold up probably the most often is one that says you guys that I hold up whenever somebody <laughs> says you guys to remind them that we're not all guys here. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just lots of things like that. And, you know, response to the work, you know, we have an emotional response to the work as well. You know, all those kinds. So feelings are facts and we need to include them when we are looking at the full body of factual data about what went on during the period of time that our retrospective is is looking at. What we notice is that people with an engineer's mindset or an artist's mindset are problem solvers. So they tend to want to jump right into the middle of the retrospective and just start with an analyzing and problem solving before they've really done that really clear picture of what actually happened. Totally guilty. Yeah. Well, this will make you feel a little better. Very often business people want to jump into the decide what to do portion (laughs) (laughs) before they've done either of the other ones, before they've done the collection of data or the analysis. Let's just move into action. And so that's what I'm always alert for. When I hear people describing their retrospectives, are are they really giving attention to all three of those parts? And because that just makes a better retrospective. You end up with better hypotheses, you end up with better actions, you end up with greater likelihood of follow through and so on, which, by the way, is the biggest complaint I hear about retrospectives, no matter where I go, is we hold this retrospective meeting and then nothing happens. We don't follow through on the action plans. And, you know, when I hear that, I say, well, then stop holding your retrospectives because that sounds like a lot of waste (laughs) or figure out how to do your retrospectives in such a way that you will follow through on your action plans. Those really are the two choices there. I mean, I'm not for people just sitting in a meeting because they were scheduled to have a meeting. That seems kind of silly to me. The other pattern I see a lot of is retrospectives where, you know, people have an action plan, but the action plan doesn't actually solve the problems largely because of the dysfunction of the focusing step that you mentioned. Right. We may have found a problem to solve, but it's not not the right problem or it's not one that's really going to get us the most benefit. On the other hand, I am also, if people have not been doing retrospectives and are just beginning to do them, I don't care how small a problem they pick to work on. If it's something they think they can accomplish and get some traction on and get some feedback about how did that go. That is, it's like building a team muscle. You know, you may start with smaller weights and get successful with the smaller weights before the team starts taking on the big weights, like influencing other people in the organization. So I always counsel to start with things that are well within the team's control, you know, something they can actually make happen and that they can actually analyze without having to have reference to a lot of other outside input. And as they build that learning and improvement muscle, they will be able to take on bigger and bigger things that are more complex or more difficult, you know, require more organizational influence or, you know, all those other kinds of things. You really want to stay away from starting out with the actions that uh, the sentence begins, they should. 
Right? I hate the word should. <laughs> yeah. But we could try this, right? And that's so I want to I want to keep teams on we could because I think control is really important, particularly in the beginning. I mean, specifically, the thing I'm I'm hung up on is kind of the focusing step aspect. I've just seen so many patterns over and over. Will pick some problem that is largely, oh, like I think this should be implemented differently. It's not mm-hmm. scalable, or, right. or or some arbitrary kind of thing, or right. that we should fix this because of X. It it feels wrong to me kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. if once the team has the discipline to kind of back into the questioning of uh, with respect to value and usefulness, make us faster or accomplish anything, a lot of times, a lot of these ideas that engineers come up with to improve things don't actually make things better at all. And they're just best practice-y kinds of things or ideal vision and what is in front of us being different than that ideal vision. And then Mm -hmm. these things pop out as problems and often get a lot of intention and you end up with actionable improvements, you know, coming out of these retrospectives, but because we have uh, no good anchors for defining whether something is valuable, whether something is, is better. I mean, it's kind of better is sort of like this fuzzy notion that makes it really easy to, regardless of what experiments you run, to have a lot of confirmation bias effect. What kind of things you do to mitigate that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm, I suspect that possibly what I reacted to in the other episode was the idea of lists of actions. Teams have a lot of work to do. And so... If you're using more of a throughput Kanban flow and you're doing your retrospectives, or if you're an XP team and you're doing one week or two week iterations, taking on more than one or two, if they are small, improvement actions sets you up for failure. So even if you do generate that list, there needs to be some conversation about winnowing that list down. And one is that sometimes a very small effect action can have an outsized effect. You know, we call that the butterfly effect pattern, right? And so looking for what's the smallest thing that we could shift in this next, say, iteration that we believe would give us the biggest impact, beneficial impact. And if you want to create a, you know, an improvement list backlog or something, (laughs) that's fine. But you're only going to pull one thing or, you know, possibly two things if people are really enthusiastic about them to do the learning and experimentation on in the next iteration. So that's one thing. Otherwise, a big list, getting any of it done because you've got work as well. Um, and that's important. So there's that. The other thing that well, we were talking about, the focusing, the other thing that that helps is saying, you know, our improvement action this next time is going to be linked to our relationship with our customer or the rotation. Uh, we're going to experiment with a new pairing rotation or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm kind of allergic to the term best practices because I think there are good practices that work for some people in some instances. 
and that very often those don't translate into whatever instance is. They're worthwhile things to try, but to try with a curious and open mind. Is this going to work for us in the way that they work for somebody else? And I think about, you know, companies who are just trying to adopt, say, the Spotify model whole hog without really noticing that Spotify's a very different kind of business than they have, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. <laughs> about, I mean, you made a comment about making big lists of to-do items ending up yeah. creating this new management problem of yeah. managing yeah. things and, and needing to right. narrow down the list. So in terms of, you know, typical practice of filling up a big backlog of technical debt items, I, I would totally agree on that aspect of it. At the mm-hmm. same time, with respect to being able to make intelligent improvement decisions, what I found from practice, considerably more data to improve the quality of decisions just because of the sheer amount of complexity and variation yes. in the interaction that goes on on the project itself. And mm-hmm. so as opposed to creating a, a big list and then trying to make intelligent decisions just based on instinct of reading through these things and winnowing down what's important, what we're basically doing is creating a graph structured based database of past historical experiences and then taking like all of our knowledge and sort of uh, continually grooming it in a software developer insight system. And then Mm -hmm. when we go into the retrospective meeting, we're not just talking about the last week. We're looking at the patterns across the last six months, year of type of trends that have happened on our priorities for improvement or and choosing a focus topic based on complex historical patterns that we've seen emerge. So I, I feel like that level of rigor is needed to be able to intelligently choose a focus. Yeah. Well, certainly laudatory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't see a lot of teams putting that much into it. I mean, I think that sounds I still would say take them off one at a time. You want to create as, as you address each of those issues, you want to make sure that you are taking something that is in the five rules of accelerated learning book that I wrote with my son Willem, we talk about focusing on the flow of learning and talk about bite-sized pieces. What is it that your team can easily take in, consume, digest before they take on the next thing? And so, you know, what you're talking about, really looking at that history, for one thing, I think you're looking at a longer retrospective than something that you would use to just look at a couple of weeks worth of data. And, you know, retrospective lengths and sizes and so on and numbers of people involved and all of those are kind of complexity factors. But I think that kind of analysis that you're talking about doing is super. I mean, that that would really help to focus you in the right direction for where can we get the most beneficial impact. I People talk about what's most important for us to do all the time, and I try to reframe beneficial impact because importance is kind of vague and fuzzy. But if we really want to get the goodness out of this, 
let's stay focused there. And I, I, you know, I like what our colleague Woody Zool talks about for when they were creating mob programming. He talked about every day just figuring out how can we turn up the good, right? So that's what we're looking to do. How can mental improvements toward more benefit to the team and to the product that we're creating and to our organization as we go along. So I think that sounds, Janelle, I think that sounds great. Um, and I don't see a lot of teams doing that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, at the, at the same time in the, in the context that we, we right. started inventing tooling in this where our, our project was going off the rails despite doing all the best practice things. And it was, you know, 10 year old project and, the things that we were doing weren't working to solve our problems. And so we resorted back to gathering data as a method to figure out where our problems were. And pretty much, you know, as we were saying, with respect to best practices, we basically abandoned all best practice wisdom at that point and said, okay, let's see what the data says and start how to write good software. And one of the other things, as opposed to doing kind of biweekly retrospectives, as as we do per developer, per task reflection with, ah, um, cool. uh, you know, before and after each individual task as a, as a pair. Mm-hmm. And so because we have a lot of the, the thinking and reflection at such a fine grain model, it, mm-hmm. uh, or two week reflection where we're sort of looking at culminating things as a group, mm-hmm. the dynamics of that discussion change significantly when we've all already got a good bit of context on reflecting on the things that happened over the last two weeks. So I think that's the, another significant reason for. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that is just awesome, Janelle. The idea of just maintain culture of reflection and inquiry as just a part of your ongoing work has to stand you in really good stead. I mean, that, that has to benefit you because that just, it makes such a difference to be in that space. I mean, that really is continuous learning, and I congratulate you for it very much. It's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. So one other thing that is specifically with respect to value versus waste, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what is value in the context of software development? How, how do we define that <laughs> as a team? That's interesting. That's a conversation I was just having about an hour and a half ago with somebody else. I think that's one of the toughest nuts, actually, in software development. Um, I think that's a thing we really have to where product owners in particular or, or the product management folks are tasked with prioritizing according to value, but nobody has figured out what's valuable in their organization. So, you know, there's there are some rough ideas about that. You know, do we prioritize things that might increase our we prioritize things that are going to increase our revenue over the short haul? Are we looking at things that are going to protect our current revenues? Are we looking at things that are going to reduce our costs, our current costs? Are we looking at things that are going to avoid costs in the future? Are we completely focused on 
what our customer tells us is most valuable to them, ill at ease, or is that, you know, some particular feature? That's a very complex set of stuff to look at. And I don't see enough teams and organizations doing the work to sort through that whole pile of potential value to say, for us right now, which of these things is going to give us the most beneficial impact, either for the team or for the organization, you know, whether we're IT or whether we are a company that is producing a product for sale in the marketplace. All of those things all go together. And we don't spend enough time looking at that, for sure. It could be any of that, right? Right. Uh, interesting. Uh, that's that's part of the reason a lot of time focusing on measuring waste as anti-value because it right. uh, just because it is something that is easier to define. I mean, I think, you know, value has a lot of challenges with defining things. So, I mean, like we've got a feature that we want to add to the product, but generally speaking with product sales and our product sales model, the revenue yield from a feature that you're putting in the product. So yeah. how is this feature going to ultimately affect, you know, customer behavior, you know, kind of things when it comes to trying to associate these things with money. Right. And so one of the things that we started focusing on was optimizing for joy and that uh-huh. our customers having a joyful experience with our product matters nice. and is, yes. is important to us results in a shift in revenue it's part of our purpose as an organization. Yeah. Well, and it's a it's a much surer path than many other ones you could take, I think. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I like that a lot. I want to go back to something you said a little while ago about uh, taking things in small bite-sized pieces and uh, picking the things that maybe will give us the biggest bang for our buck. Uh, I mean, I guess that's sort of the entire idea of doing agile development is that you focus on the thing that's going to deliver the biggest value to your customer first for the smallest amount of effort, right? But when you said that, I I saw that in terms of the way I do refactoring. And, you know, the way that I approach refactoring is different than the way a lot of people talk about what they think of is that word. And what I like to do is I start with the tiny things like renaming variables until they make a little bit more sense to me, right? Inserting white space between sections, like little tiny things where Mm -hmm. I'm cleaning up the tiny mess, removing a little bit of noise so I can free up the mental capacity to see the next smallest mess and so on. And that sounds to me a lot lot like Mm -hmm. what you're saying about taking things in small pieces and focusing on just one thing at a time. Is that, does that match? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've been for many, 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 many years. So, uh, but I recently went to a mob programming workshop and I was part of a mob and we were, you know, we were programming together. And I had the experience that I have had other times when I, you know, observed our colleague Jim Shore doing some kind of public reaction or those kinds of things where you can actually see the code get more beautiful. You know, adding in those white spaces, making the names more consistent. I mean, all of those kinds of things, all those small things that you're talking about really do make a difference. You know, I have just developed the belief in taking the time with that detail 
of I can make this small improvement and that small improvement and that small improvement ends up having a big impact. And I totally agree. That's right there. All right. I'd like to take this time to uh, give a quick shout out to one of the new supporters of our show. We would like to mention as noteworthy Tim Gaudet, uh, who describes himself on his Twitter bio as a web developer and cynical idealist. And I'm not quite sure how that works, but I like it. Uh, anyway, you can check out Tim on Twitter at IamTJG. And if you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash greater than code. And a donation at any level will get you into our Slack community where we have a bunch of wonderful people talking about interesting things. Okay, we also wanted to talk uh, this episode about Agile Fluency, and uh, I think on, on a previous show, episode 28, Rain had been talking about a capability maturity module model of some sort, and then I jumped in with Agile Fluency because I love the model, and you were clear about mentioning that it's not a maturity model, so I, I don't know what that means, but I'm curious to find out. But I'd really like to jump in first with just this idea of what is fluency and what is this sort of multi-level model of fluency. I've played with that a bit myself. I ran across it with your son, Willem, and I absolutely love it. So can you start by introducing that to our, our listeners? Jim Shore and I had been working together on a number of different projects, and we were looking for uh, the next thing and taking what we had been working on to the next level. And and one of the things was a workshop that we were doing and that we were having some difficulties. I mean, we were getting really good feedback on the workshop, but we were having difficulty sort of sequencing the content. We just like the best for sequencing the content. So as you do, when, you know, we were dealing with a hard problem, we started talking about something else entirely. You think it's about something else, <laughs> but really it's not. <laughs> Yeah, but really, it turned out it wasn't because both of us had just been engaging with Willem around the idea of language fluency and and what was going on there with uh, the nonprofit that they have called Language Hunters. And, um, and so those epiphanies about, well, what if we applied that idea of fluency to the things we were trying to teach about software development? And so that was kind of the genesis. So it definitely was a feeder idea. And the piece of that is fluency is what you can do routinely. It's the thing you automatically go to. It's your, as like you were a pianist, it's the piece you would always go back to, the simple piece that you can count on, you can play all the way through, right? And generally, um, if we use the language example, we try to match fluency to need. So if I'm taking a vacation in foreign land to me where they speak a language that is not my native language, but I'm going to be there for a week and I need to be able to get on the bus and I need to maybe, you know, understand how much things are going to cost. I need one kind of fluency. I need to be able to ask how much does this cost with routine ease, right? Without having to, I don't want to fumble around with that, but I probably don't need or open a store or any of those kinds of things. There's a certain level of fluency that is my sweet spot for that use. On the other hand, if I'm going to stay there for a few months and I plan to attend social events and things, I'll need to be able to have small talk and chit chat and maybe tell a story about what I did yesterday of 
fluency level that I would need to do that. My friend Steve tells me a story about a time when he thought he was fluent in a foreign language, but he was riding a bike and got stopped by the police because, as it turned out in the end, he was riding in a place he wasn't supposed to be riding. He wasn't going too fast or anything else, but he very quickly found the limit (laughs) when the police were in his face shaking their finger at him, right? So Jim and I formulated this idea of software development fluency being what can you do and what will you do as a team, even when you are under pressure, even as it comes in and tells you you need to be able to deliver this tomorrow. What are the things that you fall back on? What is kind of your native tongue software development in that situation? So as we began working on it, and talking to different people about it and about what their experiences was, we kept testing as we got to a new idea about what this model should look like. We would take it out and test it with folks who were really doing software development with real teams and being successful at it. And we came up with this concept that we could identify at the time four sort of proficiencies, that sets of proficiencies, of fluent proficiencies that seemed to go together. And that's how we made up the model. So while each set of proficiencies builds on the previous one, you don't always need to build on the previous one. Just it depends on your need. And that's why we don't call it a maturity model. A maturity model tends to imply that you want to get as mature as you can possibly get. And what we're saying with the agile fluency model is, no, you only need to get as fluent as matches the need that you have for fluency. So that's why we're we're sensitive around the maturity. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. Um, that's a useful yeah, clarification. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a very useful model to us over time. First, we just wrote an article and Martin Fowler very kindly offered to publish it. And then we thought we were, well, that's interesting and that's done. But then people kept asking us questions particularly about how to kind of operationalize it in their organization. And so a couple of years ago, we formed something called the Agile Fluency Project and brought in a few more people to help us with that. And we're looking at all the ways in which the model can be used inside organizations to help them find their appropriate level of fluency, make sure they're not over-investing in some things and under-investing in others and so on. So getting the appropriate level of investments and training and attention and all those kinds of things that the team might need. All right. I'd like to take another moment to mention that, uh, as we announced on a previous show, we are now accepting submissions for blog posts. If you would like to write something um, and have us put it up on our blog so you can maybe reach a little bit wider the audience than you would on your own blog, please feel free to uh, email mandy at greaterthancode.com and uh, pitch your idea, send her your, your submissions. I did want to mention one thing that I really got out of the fluency model that came out of, of Language Hunters, which was prior to encountering this model, I would see people talking about how, oh, I'm fluent in Spanish. And I would always see it as this like unattainable goal of like, wow, you've been like living in this culture for a couple of years and, you know, you can carry on a conversation with Charlie Rose in that language. Mm-hmm. And so that was really transformative to me in making it just this idea that 
a level of fluency at a low level of proficiency is accessible, right? It gives me somewhere to start, which, you mm -hmm. know, somebody with ADD, I often have trouble <laughs> digesting those yeah. big things all at once. Right. So I, I just wanted to mention that I found that really appealing about the fluency model in general. And then I was thrilled to see the way that you adapted it to uh, agile adoption. Oh, well, thank you. I think I think it does link to the things we were talking about earlier about the sense of inquiry and learning and the things that we were talking about about value, because as we put the model together, one of the things that we discovered the, thing, the great thing about creating models is that at a certain point they start teaching you back. <laughs> and, uh, Mostly in the ways that they break down, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's been it's been a really fascinating thing for me over time as I've you know contributed some different models to the agile world. But in this case, in particular, what we started noticing was that the fluent sets of fluent proficiencies that we were identifying as a part of this model tended to be very much in relation to how the team was connecting with value. So that the first fluency that we identified was this idea of focus on value, which means the team can be counted on, assuming they're getting good information from the product people and the business side, the team can be counted on to always work on the next most valuable thing, that whatever they are producing is going to be the next most valuable thing from the backlog or wherever they're getting their work assignments from. The next part of the what we call the path through fluency or the bus drive, sometimes we call it a bus zones, is delivering value, which means not only is the team producing the next most valuable thing, but they are delivering that on a certain cadence and they can be counted on to deliver that on a certain cadence. And then the third one, I won't keep going through the whole thing, but then the third one is that the team we call optimized value, which means not only can the team respond to the customer and the business and give the next most valuable thing on a certain cadence, but also they can begin to contribute ideas of value that the customer may have or need, and they can anticipate what will be valuable to their customer because they understand them so well. So that has led my inquiry into the ideas around what is valuable that we were talking about earlier. It's like, how do we talk about that? And how do we feed that information into the team so that they can continue to learn about value in their organization and what they need to be responding to? I just think that's an interesting link back to our earlier discussion about what really is value. The fluency model ended up it, we didn't necessarily start out wanting to build it in that way, but it ended up telling us it needed to go in that way. And we're now actually working on some ideas around, is there a fluency progression for people in product management or product ownership and in that role? Because that seems to be really important. Oh, interesting. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Fluency models are really fun to create, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. So we usually finish the show with a few comments and reflections on things that stood out during the show that you'll take with you, maybe something somebody said. Uh, probably the main thing that stuck with me was thinking about that focusing step and how much effort goes into those things versus the benefits of focusing on things from the, the recent past. 
and really got me thinking about, especially with taking human emotions into consideration as what you focus on. So I'm thinking about that a lot now. So thank you, Diana. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I'll just throw mine in here. I was really intrigued by certainly the things you were talking about in terms of the way your team is managing its learning and collecting data and stuff. That's an impressive story. And I'd like to learn more about how you do that and where you do that at some point in the future. And your questions about value. Um, I don't always get to hear from other people that are as passionate about (laughs) about a particular little arcane bit of whatever is uh, that is uh, involved in Agile uh, like that. And so getting that question and being able to really talk about those issues around value was clarifying to me, actually. So I mentioned earlier the idea of small bite-sized pieces, and I talked about how I saw that in terms of refactoring. But, you know, really what stood out to me throughout this entire podcast is that we basically just keep talking about different forms of feedback and different cycles of feedback, which is, as I see it, sort of the fundamental idea in all of Agile development. But it's interesting to see how that can be applied in various different contexts. And again, it was a really useful reminder to me that, you know, even though sometimes I really want to start with the big boom, maybe sometimes it's better to be able to take tiny steps, because if you don't know how to take the bigger step, at least you can take a smaller one and get yourself that much closer. So thank you for that reminder. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Before we go, I want to mention that we are, as mentioned, listener supported, but we would totally love to have a company sponsoring the show as well if there's a good fit for us. So if you are somebody in a company that might be up for that, please talk to folks there and get in touch with Mandy. Great. And thank you, Diana, for joining us. A lot of fun. I had fun too. 